All right. Well, welcome to East Lake. My name is Brent. I'm the teaching pastor here, and uh, we are on week two of a series we're calling Advent. And last week, if you were here, my mom came and spoke for us, which was awesome. She did incredible. In fact, it was the most downloaded uh, podcast of the year for us, which is awesome for me. Thank you very much for following up with that and really speaking volumes to that, so she'll never be coming back again. Um, She also, I wanted to make mention, she had a few of these Advent Reflections books, like little Advent devotional things for you to take your family through or yourself through, Um, and I know we're a week behind on it, so you can just skip through a few of them, Um, and you don't have to do it every night. It's for us, uh, when it's convenient for us as a family, we've been sitting down this week with our kids and lighting a candle and having just a little bit of us time, and uh, so... We had printed a bunch of these out last week, and all of the greedy first service people took them all. So, um, sorry about that. They're just they're all about themselves. So, we went and had a few more printed off, and has put out a few more this morning, but then also kept some a lot for you today. So, uh, they actually do exist. Uh, they're out at our free book table. If you want to go uh, back and grab one, you can definitely follow up with that. I wanted to make mention of that early on. But, uh, Advent, uh, it's... Uh, it's a little bit different than Christmas. I'll explain the differences, but there are a lot of similarities between Advent and Christmas that happen at the same time of the year. They, fe- they feature some of the same uh, characteristics. I mean, when you think about Christmas, um, you think, I think about anticipation of Christmas. Uh, there is no greater holiday on the American public calendar uh, that justifies more anticipation than Christmas. I mean, we, we've been, uh, it's, it's from the red cups to the everything's coming out, and we, all, we know exactly how many days we're reminded by Target and, and Macy's and all of them, how many shopping days until the last day of Christmas, and we seem to be okay with it, like we're, like that's like normal for us. Like if I had a friend be like, hey, only 13 days till Flag Day, I'd be like, I don't even know what to do with you. But when it comes to Christmas, we're like okay about it, and we actually enjoy the anticipation. We look forward to looking forward to something. It's part of the buildup of it. It's what makes Christmas so great. Uh, so there's tons of anticipation with that. Um, not only uh, that, but it's, I, I mentioned this too. Christmas like sneaks up on nobody. Nobody wakes up on Christmas Day going, I think something is important happening today. What is it exactly? You know exactly what it is, and you don't need people to tell you. Uh, When we advertise for a Christmas Eve service, we're not like, oh, by the way, um, this year it'll be on uh, December 24th. You're like, dude, (laughs) like we get it. I, I don't need to know that's so obvious of such an example. And there are other holidays on the calendar that are not, that don't come with that same sort of anticipation, right? Like I don't have to tell you, I, I, you have to be told, excuse me, you have to be told that President's Day is the third weekend in January. It's the Monday of the third weekend. And right now you're like, okay, that makes sense. Except for the fact that actually President's Day is in February. So I even fooled you just now. You don't even know. You're the, the, and the classic caring thing about holiday like that is, do I get work off on that day? That's the only thing that we care about for that holiday specifically. But anticipation is huge. Optimism is huge. There's a high level of optimism at Christmas. Um, we have an optimism about what the holiday is going to look like, even though based on the expectations and the reality of last year, um, we still, no matter what happened in the past, we still have an optimism towards Christmas. We uh, like optimistically think everybody's going to show up on time. The food's going to be cooked perfectly. 
uh, and then we're all going to stay up late and have games. Even though last year what happened was your brother-in-law figured out that his family was more important than your family, so they showed up late to dinner. Uh, the prime rib was burnt, tasted more like hamburger, so why not just have a burger instead? Uh, and then at 7.30, everybody's like, I'm too tired for games. I'm going to bed. And you're like, well, next year will be better, right? So that's the optimism that we have about the holiday as well. Highly anticipated, highly optimistic about what it's going to be. And nothing can, and it feels like in this season, even when bad things can happen to us, we have this optimism of a brighter future, that something is coming that's better than this. So uh, real quick, here's a family story for you, because I know, uh, and if you hate pastors who talk about their kids or whatever, then I don't know what to do for you, because here's my kids. So tune me out for a few minutes if you want. That's fine. My wife took all of our kids, or most of our kids, uh, to a, one of those holiday craft fairs. You ever been to one of those holiday craft fairs? They're like all over the place. Uh, and it's typically people who make things to sell so that they can make money so that they can buy other things that other people brought or made and brought to this, call it a craft fair. So it's just like this big exchange. That's how these things work. Anyways, they don't actually make any money. They just come home with other stuff that they bought. So my wife is there. She didn't make anything. She just got invited to go with somebody uh, and said yes because it's Christmassy and she loves Christmas. So she shows up with our kids, and our kid, it was like right around like lunchtime, and, uh, and so they're talking about how hungry they are, and Kylie hadn't brought lunch yet, and it was like, this is the last stop before we go home, so I'm going to buy you something and tide you over, and there's this little sweet old lady there, uh, and I heard this third hand, but she's pretty trustworthy, guys. I think I, I, think I can go for her. So who was selling homemade cookies that she had made at her house and had brought to sell. And they were like in this package of like a three-pack or something like that. So Kylie bought some and gave one to each of our twins, five-year-old twins, uh, and then had one for herself. And she bit into this, this holiday cookie. And as she's pulling out, as she's pulling the piece away from the piece that's in her mouth, there's like an attachment there. It's like attached. I think you know where I'm hiding with this, right? And so she, she pulls this hair and looks at it and she's like, I don't think that's a human hair. That looks like a cat hair to me. And so, and so Kylie's like, did the whole, like, the thing that you do, like, when you're like, you're trying to, like, get that out as fast as possible without, like, drawing a scene. And this lady, this sweet old lady is like, is it good? Oh, it's, stuff doesn't last long around my house. You know that. So she then turns to my son, Grayson, and says, asks him the question, hey, what did you think of that cookie? How was that cookie? And he goes, it was good. Um, I didn't expect that much hair, though. I, di- I didn't expect that much hair. He's so optimistic. Like, I expected some hair, just not that much hair. Like, what kind of a world? But it's Christmas, so who cares? He finished the cookie, guys. The whole thing. I didn't expect that much hair. My favorite little optimistic kid. Just, just so funny to me. So anticipation, uh, optimism, uh, expectations about what it's all going to look like and how it's all going to play out, and then reality sets in with this. So we know that that's true about Christmas. It's also true about the season called um, Advent for a, a couple of different reasons. The church um, started Advent uh, as, um, as, as, as trying to make sense of this uh, anticipation, this uh, awaiting, this optimism about the future, right? So the church calendar starts with Advent, and it starts with our base 
kind of fears and questions about life. When I look around, it feels like there's darkness. It feels like, and they did it around this time of the year, this season where the days are getting shorter, the darkness is, is big, and we're just kind of waiting for, again, a twist in the seasons, the sun to be out a little bit longer, things to start to warm up, new life of spring, a little bit of hope. They recognize here, listen, we are going to experience this, this, this time frame where all around us is dark, but we're anticipating a hope. We're anticipating the arrival. We're anticipating something different. And what they based it on was uh, essentially this. That you have in the story of Israel in the, in the first half of your Bible, the Old Testament, um, God showing up to a guy named Abraham saying, you're going to be this father of many nations, doing all of these great works through Israel, taking them out of um, is, are out of Egypt in the Exodus and into this new promised land he's given them. The rise and the fall of the, uh, the uh, Israeli empire, like the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and then all of a sudden exile into Babylon. And then what you have is silence. Uh, what, they have called, what they call the intertestamental period, the, the period between the Old Testament and the, Two Testament and the New Testament, 400 years of silence. God acts out of nowhere, says, I've got all these great plans for you. Then they find themselves in exile and then they... They realize uh, that we don't have a really bright future. It's really dark around us. We can't make sense. This is their big thing. We can't make sense of a God who said, I've got great plans for you, and yet all this is happening to me. And then 400 years of silence, and then all of a sudden, a star shows up above Bethlehem, and then the game changes, right? So then Jesus comes on the scene, does his whole thing, and then brings his disciples in the end of all of the four Gospels and, and in the, the first part of the book of Acts and says, I'm going to go away to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back pretty soon to take you to be with me, right? This, this return of Christ. But when I come back again, it's a time of judgment. It's all, all the set of things. So then the early church watches him ascend into heaven and then experiences now like, all right, well, they lived with the anticipation that Jesus was coming back. When you read, especially the book of Acts and a lot of Paul's writings and some of the epistles, what you read about is a people who are living with an expectation, anticipating, optimistic about the uh, arrival, uh, the return of Jesus Christ, uh, all of these things. They're, they're waiting and, and, and many times when you, uh, when you read the book of Hebrews, a lot of times it was written in, from a, a people group like, we think Jesus is coming back, and we think it's going to be soon. Maybe next Friday. Uh, we don't know, right? The reason that John took forever to write his version of the, the teachings and people of Jesus, uh, teachings and, uh, and the person of Jesus, was because he anticipated that in his lifetime, Jesus would return, and he didn't. And then finally, he got so old, he's like, well, I should probably write some things down, because I don't know how long, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the delay is all about. But I anticipate that he's coming back at some point. So we find ourselves in that exact same spot, anticipating by the, looking around at a world that we know is broken, looking around, and, and you get the news, you see the stuff that's going on. Maybe, maybe not in uh, America, per se, maybe not in our neighborhood, maybe not in the Tri-Cities, but we look around and we know from, uh, from a natural disaster standpoint or bad things happen or there's evil that seems to exist in the world that, you know, things get out of hand or you've got all kinds of human history we can point to and be like, that was a pretty evil point in this thing. We can look around and be like, you know what, this thing needs fixing a little bit. And I'm anticipating a return. I'm anticipating a God who comes back. I'm anticipating the re-arrival of Jesus on the scene. Now, if you have um, 
uh, attended East Lake for any length of time, you know that I do not beat this drum often, okay? Like, we are not the type of church where you get fed like, hey, Jesus is coming back Friday, so y'all better come up to the front and confess all your sins and give all your monies to Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's not what we're about. That's not it at all. Uh, but I do believe, I do believe uh, that, uh, that, that it's very clearly talked about that the early church lived with the anticipation of what they called the parousia or the return of Christ at some point to set things right, that we live in a world that is too far broken. And at some point, it can become personal for you too. At some point, the brokenness isn't like theoretical. It's like, hey, my child died. My, my, I just lost my job. My dad died suddenly. Something took place. The world's crushing. And what you're trying to do is I'm trying to make sense of all the pieces. And I think, I theoretically believe in a God who cares about me and organizes some things. And, 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 and you know, I believe that if I do good things, like things will work out for me and things aren't working out and it feels broken and I keep investing into this thing and I keep getting negative returns and I keep thinking something's gonna change, something's gonna be put right and I'm living with that hope or maybe I'm starting to give up on that hope. So whether it's like from a big picture general perspective, the world is careening out of control and we are anticipating uh, a return of, of Jesus where everything is finally set right or in my life, I'm just trying to hold out for hope that this all someday will make sense, that I may not on this side of eternity have understanding as to why this took place, but I, I, I want to learn <coughs> to trust in a God who does have these things under control. That is why the church developed this season of Advent to create in us, to create for centuries, not just East Lake Tri-City, the church across the board celebrated Advent to try and develop the muscle memory to be able to live with anticipation, with optimism, with hope. God, help me to lean forward into that. Help me to understand what waiting for whatever is next is not something that's like, that, it, that there's an active readiness, that what do I need to do? I live with that hope, but I don't just like, it's not like this pie in the sky and, and I, I don't do anything as a result of it. Advent is this like, okay, shaping form in that season, what do you want me to do? How do I get most ready for something like that? It's an Advent rhythm and we believe, we celebrate, we rehash, and we, we through, through Advent, anticipate the arrival of Jesus and the incarnation through the Christmas story to, shoot, to try and prove to us there was one period of silence, and then God intervened in history at one point in time. He came as a child. Therefore, if he has intervened once, if he has come once, he will come again. So we go through the rhythms of the Advent of the, uh, of the incarnation, and he promises to do so again. In fact, Karl Barth had this amazing quote where he talks about that's really like the whole state of the church in general. What other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? When we, when, when, when we say for a season we're going to talk about how we got to prepare ourselves for, you know, um, for his arrival, um, what other season exists? He's like, this should be all year long. This is how we exist as a church. This is our, our, our method forever. Now, you come in January, we're going to talk about something different. February, we're going to talk about relationships. So it, I, we don't beat this drum every single week. But again, it's like this. We know this is our current state. We're waiting and we're watching while we're also seeking to live a life of meaningful action. And that's a big piece of it too, man. I'm watching and I'm waiting. And yet I want it to be purposeful 
purposeful watching and waiting, purposeful, meaningful action. So what I want to do is talk to you about a story that shows up uh, in Matthew's account of the person of Jesus. So uh, Matthew has written this story, his personal take on it as one of Jesus' uh, personal disciples. One of the guys, he was a tax collector who was uh, approached by Jesus, who said, come, leave that whole thing, come follow me for a bit. He'd be out of place with the other 12 disciples, or the other 11 disciples. He would be the one that was like, probably the most outcast of that society, but one who um, was very well educated, probably significantly wealthy, and had an opportunity to be able to write down, uh, leverage his wealth and leverage his intellect to be able to write down stories and perspectives about who Jesus was and what he taught. And one of the stories that he captures for us is a parable that shows up in Matthew chapter 25. little subtext for it is called the parable of the 10 bridesmaids or the 10 virgins. And what you need to know about this is that it is a parable. So Jesus taught in parables all the time. You have to remember, I say this every time we talk about parables, um, there are going to be some things that play out that may not be factually, like they may not make sense, or they may, they may you may be like, well, how did he know, or how did they know? And you're like, no, <clears throat> this didn't actually happen. He's trying to present a moral to the story. There's always one big moral to the story, and that should be the thing that we focus on, not in the minutia of the details of, well, what about, well, what about, what about, what about. <clears throat> that's not worth our time. Anyways, uh, so verse one says this. We're gonna walk through this verse by verse and talk about how this is the, uh, prepares us like for the active readiness, active readiness of waiting for something to happen, all right? Verse one, at the time, or at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. This would be for them a very, very familiar picture, not for us. We do weddings a lot differently, um, our weddings are, you know, the engagement takes place and it's usually somewhere, some fancy, right? Someplace nice. And then there's a ring involved and then it goes quickly on Instagram. So everybody knows, and here's a quick link to our bridal registry, just in case, just in case, just throwing it out there. Uh, for them, how it would work is, um, they would begin to, uh, there would be, there wouldn't be like a dating process per se, but what would happen would be this young man decides that's the woman I'm going to marry. I am going to now build on my father's house, like this extension, this mother-in-law apartment, they would live typically with the, father, the, the, the groom's uh, family for the first part. This would be there as we kind of get on our feet and then we would go out, out elsewhere. Build an extension on the house. Uh, at some point, uh, he would then decide or the father would decide, okay, it's finished. Now you can go get your wife and make this process. And it would be, they would do it for dramatic purposes, typically in the middle of the night. Um, and the reason they did it is because they would make a big scene. They would go into the house, they would knock on the door, they would go up to the room, grab her, sweep her off her feet, all romantic-like, take her out into the street, and then they would take what they would call the long road home. And they would have a bridal party with them, uh, like this processional, this parade, this midnight parade is basically how it would work. And they would be cheering and excited, and everybody would be like, what's going on out there? Oh, so-and-so's getting married. Well, that's exciting for them. Congratulations. He would take them back to the house, and for one week, they would spend that first week of their married life. They would do some sort of a, a, a ceremony thing there, uh, and then for a week, they would be like hosting an open house, and they would be treated like princesses and, and prince, like, like this king and queen treatment. It would be like this big deal, and then they would go on with their life. And typically, that was like the best week of their life. They would not have to worry about anything. And it's so interesting because it's such a different dynamic for today. Do you remember when you got married? Like uh, the moment that you got, the, I, I won't speak for you. The moment that I got married, the last people that I wanted to see after I got married was my family. I was like, like our ceremony was done. It was over at Faith Assembly. 
Um, and we got in a car. We got in, actually, Daryl's here today. We got in Daryl's car uh, and, uh, and drove it. We did a big loop around the, the bridges. And then we drove it to the Best Western in Pasco. Don't judge me. It was really nice back then. And that week, because we were flying out the next morning to go to Hawaii. And I remember, <clears throat> I remember waking up the next morning and going to the airport and having to meet my dad to exchange the keys because Daryl wanted his car back for good reasons. And, uh, and having, knowing that I was going to have to see my dad after I had just spent my wedding night with my wife and him knowing all what's going on with that, right? <laughs> that awkwardness. I did not want to see him. I was like, I'll leave it under the mat. I'll do this. He's like, no, don't do that. It's, it, we don't, you know, I don't want to do that. Just, just throw me the keys through the gate or whatever. And I'm like, fine, whatever. And I remember seeing him and I'm like, here you go. I don't want to talk about last night. Thank you though. <laughs> Anticipation, optimism, expectations, reality, all of those things. <laughs> Advent, Christmas, wedding night, etc. All right. That's what's, that's the difference in, in this place. So, so, that's the process that he's talking about. He's, he's using this parallel, that's a side note, for this story about ten, why are 10 bridesmaids waiting? Because they're anticipating this groom who's going to come get his bride, who's one of their friends probably, and it's going to be this big giant parade and this big giant festivity in the biggest week of her life. Big deal going on. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. Verse 2. Um, foolish and wise, this would have been used, again, just a few uh, chapters earlier in the parable about the people who, or the men who built their house on sand versus wood. So this is a common, common principle here. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not have any oil with them. Why would you do that? Well, you don't know this, but what they would say would be, if I could take my lamp, I don't really need oil. It's got enough left over. It's going to happen fast. In other words, they felt like we heard on good reputation that he's coming tonight, and so therefore, we don't really need any long-term preparation. We're good. We'll just wing it. We'll figure it out. It'll be fine. The wise ones, however, took oil in the jars along with their lamps, not because they thought that they would need it. They didn't think they would, but just in case we're going to, in active readiness in this way. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. His own fault, there's no explanation for why this is, and they all became drowsy and they all fell asleep. This is an interesting thing because you would think that at this point they would say something like, all right, the wise, or sorry, the, the foolish bridesmaids got tired and sleepy and they fell asleep, but the wise ones stayed awake because they were so into it. They were so prepared. That's not what happens. They all fell asleep. <clears throat> At midnight, verse six, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Side note, when is this taking place? Midnight. You think those shops are open? No. So what are, what are they saying? Those selfish little virgins. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's, that's what's happening here. Now, before you get your pennies in the water on this, remember, parable didn't actually happen. What's he trying to communicate? Not that these are jerks of friends. Because if this was an actual scenario, you would probably be like, all right, well, we'll just do a little bit and a little bit, and I'm sure everything's going to be fine. We'll just, we'll do this all together, right? That would be the common friend, nice thing, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That would, that's the weird thing about this. This doesn't match into the do unto others. Jesus is like celebrating the fact that some of your, some of your friends are going to be idiots, and they're not going to plan very well, and don't give them the shirt off your back. Let them suffer. Tell them to go find oil at midnight. <laughs> well, it's not going to happen. I know. That's their loss. They're going to miss out on this example. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. 
That's the expectation. We know that. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. They went into the big party, the celebration, the seven days of the feast. And the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't even know you. I don't even know you. Again, sounds really harsh. It sounds like, like this heaven and hell thing, like cast out into the utter darkness and the gnashing of teeth and all of that. And what he's trying to show is like, listen, there is an exclusion that takes place when you're not ready for this. And that's just the reality of things about life that are one-time experiences. Have you ever showed up late to a wedding? If you've ever showed up late to or watched, is there anything more awkward than watching people? I was at a wedding recently where the bride's walking down and right behind them are these people coming in going, sorry, 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 sorry. And you're like, Yo, oh my gosh, I feel bad for you because you're such an idiot. That's, but that's, that's fine. But can you imagine somebody like that saying, I'm so sorry, I missed the processional. Do you mind if we just redo that one quick time? If your friend asks you to do that, hey, I'm so sorry, I missed your vows. Would you guys mind bringing everybody back up here and saying those vows again? Because I feel bad because I missed it. You would say, I'm sorry that you missed it, but I'm not recreating them because this isn't for you. (laughs) This was for me and you missed it. And maybe you'll plan ahead better next time. That's the message that's going on here. That's the thing that's taking place. You obviously were not prepared. And he's trying to show people, listen, the point of this story is the bridegroom is eventually returning someday. There would be, you would be, it would be proper for you to participate in active readiness for that time. The advent is supposed to be this developing of all of the things that he would want us to have this muscle memory for, to be able to be the type of people who get to experience the greatness that is. Now, here's what I also know about preparedness. I have a tendency, and maybe you have a tendency sometimes, to think, I'm good, I don't really need to prepare, I'll just wing it, I'll figure it out when I get there. Um, And we don't, we have a low, when we have a low priority on something, Uh, that tends to be our thing. I don't want to think about it. My wife is way more active readiness than I am. Are you ready to go? I'll be, I'm fine. I'll figure it out. We'll just, I'll get there and we'll do it, right? Um, So for an example, I'll I'll show you how this plays out for me in terms of drive time to work. I live in Pasco uh, and my my office is upstairs here. So um, I'll I'll make these drives and every once in a while we'll meet people who here for coffee or counseling or something like that, right? it usually takes me about 15 or 16 minutes to get from my driveway to the parking spot here. Now, one time a long time ago, I hit all green lights and there was no traffic and nobody ever cut me off and there was no waiting to anything and I made it here in 12 minutes. In my mind, I think it takes me 12 minutes to get to this church. <laughs> Every morning, I think, good, I'll be there in 12 minutes and it never plays out that way. It's always longer than that. Now, for the most part, it's fine because I don't have anybody waiting for me. I just am always three minutes late. And I'm like, oh, man, that's weird. Um, (laughs) Now, if I have somebody who I know is going to be here or if I'm supposed to be meeting somewhere, the proper response to that would be to have that shape my decisions early on to figure out what I need to do to make that happen. And active readiness says, It's probably more like 15 minutes, but I should make it about 18 just to be safe because 
I should be early. That just speaks kindness and values people's time, right? That's an active readiness. That's me looking forward to something and saying, if I'm going to do it, it's going to require... So my mom, my mom said some of this last week, too. So one of her big points that was like a takeaway for me is rolling around in my mind is Mary's ability to say yes in the moment when the angel approaches and says, hey, you're going to have this kid. And she's just like, yeah. Like, I don't think she got there just in that moment. I don't think she was winging it and was like, oh, I think I can do this. You don't do that kind of stuff. You don't wake up one morning and be like, I think I'll run a marathon today. This is not going to happen. It's going to be this active readiness along the way. He's, this is what he's saying. Use this point. We, we are living in a mode or in a moment where we do think at some point something changes. And I don't know if it comes in my lifetime. I, I, I don't know. But the early church lived. In fact, I, I am living as if, or I, I, I anticipate it not, but I'm living as if it, it could. We are living in a moment where it feels like a long term of silence, but God has shown up in the silence before. He's promised to do it again. And eventually all of this makes sense. And in that moment, what I want to do is be in, in, in active readiness for the kind of person he's calling me to be. One of the things that was so inspiring for me um, uh, a few, uh, a few months ago, when that Charleston shooting happened, right? The kid walks into the church, the black church, and, and sits down for a small group and then ends up killing a bunch of them. And it was terrible. And the, the story that came out of it that was so inspiring was the picture of the grace and the kingdom of heaven in play in Charleston was this community of people who had recently lost loved ones and friends and family members looking in the eyes of their shooter and saying, I forgive you. Like, not like six months after it or five years after it, because I, I can get that. Like, I can see how I would, after five years of harboring bitterness to somebody that has hurt me, finally going, all right, I just like, it's eating away at me, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose to forgive because I get a side benefit of it, um, and I've kind of held onto it long enough or whatever. We're talking days after, hours after this thing takes place, them looking at him at his arraignment or whatever, and, and choosing to say forgiveness. And the world going at it, the world, by the way, taking notice. The Washington Post and New York Times going, how, 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 how can you do that? How can you do that? How is that even possible? And for them, a lot of times it was motivated by their faith. It was motivated by the fact that for their entire life, they've been shaped and molded and they've prayed this prayer and they have this understanding of grace and this understanding of, of man, I, I'm not perfect either and I've been forgiven so much, therefore I should be a proponent of forgiveness in, in, in this way. That did not happen by accident. They did not wing it that day, guys. You don't wing that kind of stuff. They lived out their faith in an active way and the reason they were able to do it I think it's because they had been a part of a community where week in and week out we're being shaped, we're being challenged, we're being presented with small opportunities for forgiveness so that one day I'll be able to ultimately do a major forgiveness that people are gonna look at and be like, I don't know how you did it. I don't know how you got there. Now, is that the advent of the coming of Christ? I get it, it's, it's not, but what it is is the kingdom of heaven on this earth. We are anticipating the king and his kingdom. That's advent. We are anticipating a life like that. I want to live a life like that. I want to live a life that is characterized by what he would want me to do. And I can't, I understand from this story, right? This idea of I'll just, I'll be that type of, when the time is right, I think I can do it. It just doesn't work out like that. That's not the right way to do it. That's not active readiness. You're going to miss out on the opportunity. 
to do something significant in this way. So in preparation for Christmas and all of the, 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 the build up to this, we get a chance to participate in a season of Advent, anticipating someday the world being put to rights, someday everything making sense. Someday all of the darkness, like the, 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 in the midst of this darkness, there is a glimmer of hope and a chance for me to be a part of something truly significant. But in the meantime, in the in-between time, in this Advent, may I participate, may I read a text like this, which may not make sense most of the year, but in this moment, I can see what it's trying to do to me is to present to me the value of an act of readiness. God, may you present me with opportunities to forgive in small fashion so that one day I'll be ready to forgive in big fashion, to love in small fashion so that one day I'll be able to love in big fashion. Shape me, mold me, move me to become the type of person that you want me to be. Prepare me for what you have for me. And God, I, I, I plead, and a lot of times this Advent is um, what you see, a plea in the darkness. A, a, um, they, there was a, a Latin term for it that the early church used for it. It's called Deus Abscondus, the hidden God. Like, where are you in this? Isaiah chapter 45, 15, truly you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and the Savior of Israel. Where are you? What are you doing? In our world, we can look out and say, where are you and what are you doing? Sometimes in our own personal world, where are you and what are you doing in this? Because this feels like a mess. This feels like an absolute mess. And I don't know if you are, like, don't exist or I don't know if you're like, maybe not all powerful. Or I don't know, but help me to understand. Help me to see it. I am anticipating your arrival on the scene for this mess in my life. And while I anticipate it, would you continue to shape me into the person who is ready to receive something like that and to live fully into that so that I don't miss out on what you want to do in my world and in my life? Let's pray. Father, we, some of us may be going through, I mean, this is not theory for us, like this idea of a darkness that doesn't feel like any hope. I mean, that... We've all probably been there, or we can understand a world that it feels like that. But for some of us, this might be like the active part of a world. This might be where we're currently experiencing. I mean, all of this optimism surrounding this holiday feels a little bit hollow because of some of the stuff that we're personally experiencing and, and, and the things that we're trying to make sense of. And how could this happen? How could you? And how could. And it can feel pretty overwhelming. So. My prayer, our prayer, is that together as we go through this season of preparation, we would have enough to go off of to trust that you are behind the madness, that you are um, in it, that somehow this sort of stuff makes sense, that there's an understanding that, that we can come to eventually. And God, that you would provide us with a little glimmer of hope that we can lean hard into. And that you would help us, shape us, prepare us, that you've promised to lead us through this and to become that which you've called us to be. So give us each the wisdom to know what to do with this, the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.